That's the opening of Mozart's Requiem, arguably the most famous unfinished work in the history of music. And when Mozart died on the 5th of December 1791, he left behind him an unfinished setting of the Requiem Mass. He was buried a day later, on the 6th of December, in his 36th year. The Requiem had been commissioned from Mozart by Count Franz von Walzeck, whose wife had died 10 months before in February 1791. Walzeck was a rich eccentric who liked to pay for music to be written, which he then passed off as his own. When Mozart died, Mozart's widow, Constanza, quickly scouted around for someone to finish the Requiem. She wanted to pass the whole work off as being by Mozart and thereby collect the final payment of the commission, which seems reasonable given that he was going to pass it off as his own anyway. And she thought, well, Mozart's died, so I may as well get somebody. It's, you know, it does make a certain amount of sense. Initially, Constanza approached Josef von Eibler, who had studied composition with Mozart. However, Eibler struggled and quickly realised that he didn't have quite what it took to complete the masterpiece. Mozart's writing, and then Eibler gets through two bars. Word to the wise, if you're going to do that, do it in pencil, not in ink, uh, because that will survive forever. But anyway, in that I've highlighted in the red, that's as far as Eibler got before uh, he turned down the chance to complete what was left. So let's hear the point in the Lacrimosa of the Requiem where Mozart's manuscript breaks off. which to me doesn't seem actually too bad, but it was enough to convince him uh, that he wasn't the right person for the job. So Eibler declined. So then Constanza, Mozart's widow, approached Franz Zussmeyer, who had also studied composition with Mozart. Zussmeyer agreed. Now, quite how much of the Requiem is Zussmeyer's work is a matter of speculation. If you believe Mozart's widow, then Zussmeyer had access to scraps of paper that contained many of Mozart's musical sketches for the uncompleted parts of the Requiem. Also, Constanza's sister insisted that Mozart had spoken in detail to Zussmeyer about how the Requiem should be completed the very night before Mozart's death. Now, a decade later, 
after the Requiem had been published, Zismayr claimed that he had been entirely responsible for the composition of the Sanctus Benedictus and Arnius Dei. So is, for instance, the Arnius Dei, is it Mozart? Is it Mozart Zismayr or just plain old Zismayr? Why might a musical work remain incomplete? Well, most obviously, the composer may die before finishing a piece, as we've just seen. Or a composer may lay the piece aside, sometimes with the intention to complete it at a later date, and sometimes not. Or one movement may have been replaced by another, the initial movement thereby becoming a topic, uh, without place, as it were. Um, this is the case with Beethoven's Piano Andante that was the original slow movement of the Waldstein Piano Sonata. One of Beethoven's friends thought that the sonata was too long and after some soul-searching, if you can put it like that, Beethoven was basically livid but eventually came round to the idea and Beethoven replaced the Andante with a shorter movement. But interestingly, in that case, the Andante survived on its own. Indeed, it found great favour with audiences, so much so that it became known as the Andante Favori, the favoured andante, which is a nice outcome for a banished movement. Or a composer's librettist may die before completing the word book, as in the case of Beethoven's planned opera Macbeth. Or a composer may lose sympathy with the libretto before even starting to compose, as in the case of Beethoven's never even to be started Alexander. Or a composer might have made a rough copy of a work and only copied a portion in a fair hand, then the rough copy is lost. Or a work may have been banned by the censor before completion, as in the case of Europe's Hour of Liberation, a projected cantata by Beethoven which never proceeded beyond the sketching stage. Or a composer may have begun a piece, but the event for which the piece was being written was called off. Now, this might have been the case for Purcell's Hear My Prayer, for instance. If you look at the right-hand page there, what survives is an eight-part setting, an eight-voice setting by Henry Purcell of the first verse of Psalm 102. It was copied by Purcell in his own hand. Let's turn the page. At the end of the anthem, Hear My Prayer, there are several pages of blank music manuscript which seems to indicate that the piece had not been copied in its entirety. And in fact, I think, looking at that, you don't need to be uh, particularly um, au fait with Purcell's handwriting to realise that is very definitely something incomplete. If you do know anything about Purcell's handwriting at all and the way he copied out scores, you'll be convinced because you'll say, well, hang on, he never finished a piece without his little flourishes. And if we turn back a page to the piece before, that's how he'd normally finish a piece. It's not there. So lots of blank manuscript paper, no flourishes, 
it's an incomplete piece. Looking at this manuscript, if you look at Purcell's handwriting, again going deeper into Purcell's handwriting, and specifically if you look at the way in which he shaped his lowercase r, you can work out pretty clearly that Hear My Prayer was composed in 1685. So possibly for the funeral of Charles II. Now Charles II allegedly converted to Roman Catholicism on his deathbed, so there was no state funeral. So the piece that Purcell had started writing for the event would no longer have been required. Now that's not in any way fact, but it does seem it would be one explanation for why the piece remained as it did. But looking at the piece and the way it's constructed, because I think that's um, helpful, it is a remarkable uh, couple of minutes of music um, because it's so tight. It's basically built on two things. The first uh, thing is what you might call the subject, top left, hear my prayer, O Lord. And also its inversion, in other words, its upside down version, hear my prayer, O Lord. So I've left a flat off there, I just noticed. But anyway, so the main subject and its upside down inversion. And then the counter subject, and let my crying come. And also the inversion of that counter subject, and let my crying come. And that more or less is it. It's an incredibly tightly constructed piece of a subject with its inversion and a counter subject with its inversion, neither of them very long, but there isn't much filler uh, in this music as we'll hear now.
extraordinary introduction um, to a piece. And when you look at Purcell's clearly incomplete manuscript, uh, you can't help but what, wonder what might have come next. Well, what came next could have been a very substantial piece indeed. That's the first verse of Psalm 102. Who knows what was planned, but the next verse, hide not thy face from me in the time of my trouble, again, very appropriate for if it had been planned for that state funeral of Charles II. What would we get next? More choir, solo with continuo, vocal ensemble with continuo, strings. Uh, it really is a wonderful thing to imagine what might have happened. But I don't think that it merits completion, because all we have is the text. We know the text that would come next, but that to me, and the reason I played all of, you, the, all of, all of, the, uh, all of the pieces we have, it, it's, it's complete in itself. You don't need uh, to complete it, and, and anybody who would want to do so, given that's the only clue that you have. Now, uh, as I say, the fragment is very much complete in itself in that case, and you could say the same thing of uh, the Beatles song, Free as a Bird. In New York in 1977, John Lennon made a demonstration cassette recording of a new song. The demo was never intended to be the finished product, it was a first draft. Now, in 1994, the remaining three members of the Beatles took Lennon's demo to a recording studio and developed the melody and lyrics. They added lines from Their Present, 1994, and shoehorned them into Lennon's 1977 lyrics. As you remember, John Lennon was shot in 1980 in the Upper West Side in New York. So the three remaining Beatles added their voices. They added Ringo Starr's drums, Paul McCartney and George Harrison's acoustic guitars, Harrison's lead guitar and slide solo, McCartney's bass guitar, and McCartney also doubled Lennon's original piano accompaniment.
Uh, was it right to take the work of a dead man, add some material and repackage it for a modern audience? In that same year, 1994, an English composer, Anthony Payne, was doing a similar thing to Elgar. In November 1932, when Elgar was 75, the BBC had commissioned Elgar to write a third symphony. I think it was £1,000, which is quite a lot of money. I mean, even now, for a BBC commission. Um, <laughs> Eleven months later, in October 1933, Elgar was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. So he had the commission for just under a year. Sketches and ideas haunted the dying composer thereafter, but all that is left for posterity is 83 pages of sketches and a further 44 pages of duplicate material. But the very opening eight bars of Elgar's Third Symphony does survive in every detail. Now, only 17 bars of the symphony ever existed in full score, so you're looking at about half of them. But this is genuine Elgar, and this is how he conceived the opening of his third symphony. It's an abrupt end, but that's what you have. On the 20th of November 1933, when Elgar was riddled with incurable cancer, and the symphony, the third symphony, in its physical form lay in tatters, Elgar said to his daughter and his best friend, Billy Reed, don't let anyone tinker with it. No one could understand. No one must tinker with it. Elgar died three months later in February 1934 at the age of 76. Now, Elgar's friend, the Irish dramatist George Bernard Shaw, was very clear. Though Elgar left some sketches of a third symphony and was actually at work on it when he died, no completion or reconstruction is possible. The symphony, like Beethoven's Tenth, died with the composer. And in the preface to Elgar as I Knew Him, published in 1936, two years after Elgar's death, by his friend, the violinist, Billy Reed, Billy wrote, All the attempts to complete the Venus of Milo with a pair of arms have failed. In Elgar's case, we have the arms without the statue, a much more insoluble problem. And it sent me to thinking that uh, Private Eye would probably come up with that as, on their lookalikes page. The similarity is that they're both incomplete. The difference is, the crucial difference, is that Elgar's Third Symphony never was complete. And Billy Reed, Elgar's biographer and friend, wrote, the material for a Third Symphony had been in Elgar's mind for years. Some of the themes and ideas are written down in his scrapbooks in various guises, Frequently the same phrase is repeated in different keys. Um, and I looked for this, and in fact it is. Uh, there's, uh, there's an incidence uh, of that on several occasions, where he's writing the same material but decides uh, to transpose it. So here, for instance, uh, on the left...
write the same thing, but just a semitone down. Pages of material that had obviously been very clearly thought out. And it was Elgar's way. Stuff could hang around in his musical sketchbook for years, and often did. Here's uh, some of his sketching from the slow movement, very much less complete than the passage that you've just seen. Now, Elgar sometimes played through parts of the Third Symphony at the piano with Billy Reed playing the violin from scraps of manuscript paper scribbled out by Elgar. So there was a lot of it up here in Elgar's head. And Reed said, of the slow movement, he wrote the main themes out on a single stave for me to play them on the violin while he filled in the harmonies on the piano. And I could not induce him to begin the slow movement at the beginning. We always started at the middle section, or what I imagined would be about the sixth or the eighth bar. So it does seem, a lot of it seems to be in Elgar's head, but he's not prepared to share all of it, even with uh, his best friend. Here's how Anthony Payne reconstructed the opening of the slow movement, and it's actually quite, it's very close uh, to the sketch that you see there. Entirely frustratingly, as you can see, the bit we've got to ETC, etc. And Billy Reed then recalled, then his terrible last illness began, and so there was no more writing or playing until one day, not very long before he left us, he wrote in pencil as he lay in his bed this last example. That's what you see at the bottom here. Probably the very last notes he put upon paper and which he kept by him to show me on my next visit to his bedside. He would not say whether it was the end of the whole symphony. All he said, with tears streaming down his cheeks, was, Billy, this is the end. And he does indeed say, end there, and fine at the end. probably the last notes that Elgar wrote on paper. Now, there were ups and downs before Anthony Payne's reconstruction of Elgar's Third Symphony became public. Elgar's relatives couldn't agree whether to allow Payne to go ahead. And, you know, don't tinker with it, that was quite clear. But what swung it was the idea that come the 1st of January 2005, the sketches that had been published in Billy Reed's biography, Elgar As I Knew Him, would pass out of copyright. 
and those sketches, the family thought, might provide enough material for somebody less able and less empathetic than Payne to try their hand at completing the work. And indeed, support for the idea came across the years from a conversation that Elgar himself had with his doctor. Elgar said, if I can't complete the Third Symphony, somebody will complete it, or write a better one, in 50 or 500 years. Well, it was 63 years in the end. Legal wrangles also stifled the completion of Alban Berg's opera Lulu. Lulu was mostly completed by Berg's death in 1935, but a significant amount of the third and final act hadn't been orchestrated. About three quarters of Act Three remained in short score and piano score with some indications of instrumentation. So we had that and we want that. That's just one bar, and you've got to complete over a thousand of them. In the spring of 1934, Berg had learned from the conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler that production of Lulu in Berlin would be impossible under the current cultural and political situation. It was at this point that Berg set the opera aside in order to write a concert suite, the so-called Lulu Suite. Berg died on Christmas Eve 1935 and the world premiere of Lulu was planned for November 1936 uh, in Zurich. So Ellen Berg, Alban's widow, asked the composers Schoenberg, Webern and Zemlinski if they would complete the work and they all declined. It is, we can understand, a lot of work. So Helen allowed Acts 1 and 2 to be performed but not Act 3 and for the premiere Acts 1 and 2 of Lulu were followed by the last two movements of the Lulu Suite, the suite that Berg himself had compiled as a concert version. Now this went down so well that Berg's widow thought that the work should continue to be performed in that state and that nobody should attempt a reconstruction of Act 3. This was later described by the composer Friedrich Zerha as a grievous offence against one of our greatest musical dramatists. And it can't have helped that Schoenberg, Webern and Zemlinski had all decided not to complete Lulu. Their lack of time to devote to the project was misinterpreted as their having artistic reservations. So, restoration of Lulu's Act 3 was embargoed by Helen Berg, but in spite of this, Friedrich Zerha began working on the materials in 1962. Hélène died in 1976, she struggled on to the age of 91, and the opera remained disputed until 1979, when the first complete performance of Act Three uh, of Friedrich Zerha's reconstruction was given. And it was given in Paris in February, conducted by Pierre Boulez, and in July in Santa Fe, conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. The enormity of that reconstruction, I can't overstate. 
you're looking at an early 17th century anthem, I Am the Resurrection and the Life by Orlando Gibbons. And this is what it sounds like. does indeed sound a little bare. This uh, was originally an anthem for five voices, not for three, originally in five separate part books. In other words, each voice part had their own part book. Two of the five part books are lost, which to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, to lose one part book may be regarded as a misfortune, to lose two looks like carelessness. And it is, uh, it's a problem. Uh, and so, um, if you're just looking at it from uh, where you're looking at now, you'll think, well, we're missing two parts, but that's only 40% uh, that needs completing. Actually, it's significantly less than 40%. You don't need to invent any of the themes. And just as an aside, Anthony Payne only had to invent one theme in Elgar's Third Symphony. And he always challenges people to ask, I can't work out which one it is. It's so very well done. But anyway, you don't need to invent a single theme here because the nature of this imitative polyphony, the clues in the title, is that it's about imitation. So in other words, the melodies, as it were, are given to you. Everybody shares, that's the wonderful thing about this Renaissance imitative polyphony, everybody shares the same material. And if you were going to, and of course one wouldn't, but if you were going to lose <laughs> or to ban two of the five part books, um, it worked out rather well. You've got the top part, always good to have. Got the bass part, absolutely, that's a requirement. Brilliantly, that's there. And you've got one of the inner voices. So actually, filling it is not 40% of the work. It's difficult to put a percentage on it. But it's actually, uh, I would suggest, an awful lot easier than it looks. And actually, the piece still sound in the three, well, not the three-voice version, but with the three voices, there is still something that is complete about it. But if you do add... Uh, the second and fourth voices, then I think it just sounds a little bit fuller. Schubert's Eighth Symphony is such a famous unfinished piece that it's usually referred to as the Unfinished Symphony. Now, Schubert had a bit of previous and indeed a bit of posthumous uh, where unfinished symphonies were concerned. And I'll take you through some of them. So this is the... Uh, what was dubbed the Symphony Number no. Nought. This is written in 1811. 
when he was 14 years old. We've got the whole of the slow introduction and a little bit more. And this is what you're looking at here. Shows promise, but he abandoned it. And then the uh, Symphony in D, which he sketched uh, in May 1818. Uh, there are sketches for two movements here. Here's the uh, slow introduction. This is where the main theme of the first movement comes in. And then there's a symphony in D. Uh, the sketch is sometime after 1820. And there's another. The symphony known as the symphony number no. seven in E. This was sketched in 1821. It's structurally complete. In other words, it all exists in a piano score, but only the slow introduction and 110 bars thereafter are orchestrated. But this one does exist complete, but it needs orchestrating. Tenth Symphony began just before Schubert's death. Uh, the first and the third movements are not in a great state. The second movement is in a much better state, but here's the opening of it. The point is, he almost made a habit of not completing symphonies. Now the eighth symphony uh, in B minor was written in the autumn of 1822 when he was 25 years old. It's unfinished, only two movements survive, the ones you'll know, the Allegro Moderato and the Allegro Con Moto. And uh, the th of the third movement, there are 20 orchestrated bars of the scherzo, which survive, and a piano score of most of the rest of the movement. So I put together a little montage of uh, the unfinished symphony to remind you of the first and the second movements, then show you how the third one uh, was planned to go.
Sorry, not a frustrating moment for you, but it is by definition unfinished. That's where the orchestration stops. Notice that all three movements uh, so far have, um, are all in triple time, which is unusual uh, in itself. Was it Schubert's health? Was it his syphilis that was catching up with him at this point? Um, or did he get distracted by the wanderer fantasy, that wonderful and extremely difficult to play uh, piano work? Uh, that's possible, but anyway, he did. He, he, he dropped the Eighth Symphony. It is quite possible to lay a work aside because you're captivated by another, even a work I'd suggest as great as Schubert's Eighth Symphony, if uh, the reason that you're distracted is the wanderer fantasy, for instance. Now, in the event, Schubert's Eighth Symphony's two completed movements lay unperformed until 1865 and unpublished until 1867, almost 40 years after Schubert's death. And finally, turning to Bach's Art of Fugue. On the left, uh, this is the title page of the Art of Fugue in the composer's hand, maybe seven or eight years before his death. And on the right, this is the title page of the print of the Art of Fugue, which was hastily assembled by C.P.E. Bach, that's Bach's closest and most accomplished son, after his father's death. Now, history relates that the Art of Fugue was the last work on which Bach worked, and we're told that the composer died just before he had time to complete it. It's a touching story, but it's slightly misleading. Many years ago, I read a crime th thriller that hinges on a piece of evidence supposedly lodged between, let us say, pages 49 and 50 of a particular book. Marple or Poirot or Whimsy or Drummond or whomever immediately smells a rat. You can't insert anything between pages 59 and, uh, 49 and 50 of a book because those pages will always be back-to-back -back and not facing each other. Odd-numbered pages are always on the right and even-numbered pages on the left. And I've presented this to audiences for three decades now. If anybody knows what that crime thriller is, please, please, because I've had to read an awful lot of crime and I still haven't come across it, but uh, if, uh, a Gresham audience, surely, is the one that would answer that. But anyway, that's the thing. It, it all hinges on the fact that the, uh, the murderer must be lying or whoever must be lying because you can't fit anything between pages 49 and 50 of a book. Yet, in the print of The Art of Fugue, page 49 appears on the left-hand side, with its lowest stave only half filled with notes. A stave is only half full because at that point in the music it's an ideal place for a page turner, since the right hand of the keyboard part has a couple of beats rest, just enough time for the dexterous performer to flip the page over with the free right hand. So when this was engraved, page 49 was clearly a right-hand page. Bach had evidently planned the layout of his publication carefully and in advance, but unfortunately he didn't live to see the print's completion. And what happened was that page numbers were changed brilliantly. These days with technology you can read what those page numbers are, and thereby you can actually uh, reconstruct what Bach's intended order for the art of fugue had been. 
And this is what we imagine he planned. Uh, the Art of Fugue is a wonderful piece. It's, uh, as it were, the corollary to the 48. The 48, friends of Fugue, you know, are, are each in an individual key with an individual character. This is different. This is a lot of music in the same key built on the same theme. Four simple fugues, three counterfugues, four multiple fugues, three mirror fugues, and four canons. Four, three, four, three, four. Lovely symmetry there, as you'd expect from Bach. When, by the time uh, after his death, when C.P.E. Bach assembles the art of fugue, four simple fugues, yes, three counterfugues, yes, four multiple fugues, yes, two mirror fugues, oh, something missing there, four canons, yes, and then an unfinished fugue, and then a chorale which Bach seemingly dictated on his deathbed. So not quite what Bach had intended. Here's the opening of the first fugue in both versions. Uh, the manuscript on the left, the print on the right, in this open score format, so that Bach enabled you to see the counterpoint. And which indeed you can very clearly, much, much more clearly than if you try and read it off a piano score version. And there's the main fugue, uh, main fugue subject. which the entire art of fugue is based. Sometimes there's some, it's heard upside down, there's some backwards moments and all sorts of ways in which that theme is treated, but that theme is the theme of the art of fugue. And this is the final unfinished fugue. Well, the first thing that might alert you to the book, in the manuscript version, this is on two staves, not like the rest of the art of the fugue, which is on four. The other thing about this fugue is it starts on a rest. Nothing else in the art of fugue does that. And the third, perhaps most compelling thing, it's in the same key as the art of fugue theme, but it's not the Art of Fugue theme. It's similar, and it's in the same key, but it's not anything to do with the Art of Fugue, as you can clearly see even by the layout, and it is by Bach, obviously. So that's the first subject of this unfinished fugue. It's a triple fugue. Uh, then the second subject, so the fugue, the first section of the fugue stops, and then the second subject appears. long subject that. Indeed there are exactly 41 notes in it and if you use the Latin alphabet where I and J are the same letter which you have to do at this period you work out where the letters of Bach's name appear in the Latin alphabet you will find that 9 plus 18 plus 2 plus 1 plus 3 plus 8 is 41 exactly the numbers that you, of notes that you have in that second subject all of which may appear fanciful because why on earth would Bach write his own name into a fugue? Well, you get to the third subject, and he does exactly that. <laughs> Using the German nomenclature where B is B flat and H is B natural. That's it, B, A, 
So seemingly he actually writes his name into this fugue not just once, but twice. And then later on, all these three themes are combined. See the first one? That's in uh, blue. And then the 41 note theme, uh, the second one. And then B-A-C-H, your third theme. They all combine towards the end. And it's at this point that the fugue breaks off. The positioning of this unfinished homage was nothing to do with the art of fugue, but it was a homage by C.P.E. Bach, Bach's closest and most distinguished son, um, to put this at the end of the art of fugue to give himself some kind of closure. That writing at the bottom I'll transcribe for you in, uh, this is C.P.E. Bach. NB, while working on this fugue in which the name B-A-C-H appears in the countersubject, the author died. This is C.P.E. Bach wanting to complete uh, a piece of music in an incomplete way. What is he saying? He's saying this is where the master died and how the master died, writing a fugue. Interestingly, when it came to the printed edition, C.P.E. Bach didn't actually include the last six bars or the tag about his father dying over the fugue. It just wasn't true. And then after that, um, C.P. Bach placed the chorale harmonisation that his father had seemingly dictated on his deathbed, again nothing to do with the art of fugue, uh, Wenn wir in Hörsten Nörten sein, when we in deepest need, again a very uh, a, a, a proper way uh, to finish uh, this work, although it remains unfinished and it was nothing to do with the art of fugue. But this, and this I will end with, is the incomplete end to the Art of Fugue, which itself was never completed. but thank you.